Welcome to this week's bonus episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. In this episode, coordinating editor Dr. Jason Gottlieb discusses the review series on RNA therapeutics in hematology with Dr. Siobhan Keel, Margaret Ragney, and Anthony Anchines-Laguna. My name is Jason Gottlieb. I'm a professor of medicine in the Division of Hematology at the Stanford Cancer Institute and the Stanford University School of Medicine. The last 30 years have witnessed an explosion in the successful application of protein-targeted therapeutics, for example, small molecule inhibitors and monoclonal antibodies in hematologic diseases. However, the number of such targets represents a small fraction of the genome. Notwithstanding exceptional examples such as tyrosine kinase inhibitors in chronic myeloid leukemia, most disease targets are not druggable by small molecule inhibitors. By virtue of the functions that different types of RNA exert in the interactome between genes, transcripts, and proteins, RNA-targeting drugs have the potential to broaden the therapeutic arsenal for many diseases. In this series on RNA therapeutics and hematology, we have three diseases that we're addressing, and I'd like to introduce those articles to you. They include RNA interference therapy in acute hepatic porphyrias by Makiko Yasuda, Shiban Kiel, and Manisha Bawani. And then we also have hereditary transthyretin amyloidosis in the era of RNA interference, antisense oligonucleotide and CRISPR-Cas9 treatments by David Adams, Vincent Agalarondo, and Andoni Chanez-Laguna. And finally, we have innovations in RNA therapy for hemophilia by Margaret Ragney and Stefan Chan. We've chosen these three diseases because these are examples of diseases where there is either late-stage clinical trials for the development of such RNA therapeutics, and also we actually have uh, regulatory approval of either antisense oligonucleotides or small interfering RNAs that are now available to patients. So these represent the latest examples of therapeutics that are actually available to patients, whereas there's been an unmet need for these specific diseases with conventional therapies. I'd like to thank Drs. Shaban Keel and Adoni Echanez Laguna and Dr. Margaret Ragney for joining me today on this blood podcast, which introduces the review series of RNA therapeutics and hematology. In order to frame the subject of RNA therapeutics, I'd like to start by asking all of you to briefly comment on the pathophysiology driving each of these three diseases covered in the review series acute hepatic porphyrias, hereditary transthyretin amyloidosis, and the hemophilias. Dr. Keel, perhaps I can start with you for this first question. First, thanks so much for inviting me to the podcast. The porphyrias are a group of genetic diseases. Each is caused by a defect in a specific enzyme in the heme biosynthetic pathway that results in the accumulation of pathway intermediates. Their clinical manifestations can be neurologic and or photocutaneous, and that's determined by the site and composition of heme intermediates which accumulate. Porphyrias are classified pathophysiologically as either hepatic or erythropoietic based on the primary site of overproduction and accumulation of these heme pathway intermediates. The AHPs are characterized by life-threatening acute neuroviscera attacks precipitated by factors that upregulate activity of the first enzyme in the heme synthetic pathway in the hepatocytes, 5-amino-levelonic acid synthase 1 or ALAS1. Various factors upregulate ALAS1 activity, such as dieting, 
exogenous or endogenous progesterones, medications, which are inducers of the heme-containing cytochrome P450 enzymes. Induction of hepatic ALAS1 leads to accumulation of porphyrin precursors. These precursors include ALA, which is thought to be the neurotoxic mediator leading to acute attacks. These attacks are characterized by severe abdominal pain and autonomic dysfunction in our patients. Dr. Echanez Laguna, can you comment on the pathophysiology of hereditary transthyretin amyloidosis? Thank you very much for inviting me to this uh, podcast. TTR amyloidosis is an adult onset disorder, a genetic disorder, autosomal dominant, and point mutations on the TTR gene provoke the apparition of abnormal TTR circulating molecules, which are mainly produced by the liver. And these abnormal molecules are going to aggregate on target tissues, mainly peripheral nerve, and the heart. So patients present uh, usually with polyneuropathy, with sensory motor symptoms, and they also present with a cardiomyopathy. That's a fatal disorder, and that's something that is uh, well distributed all over the world. Thank you for that. And Dr. Ragney. Thank you for inviting me to this podcast. So the hemophilias are congenital X-linked monogenic disorders caused by mutations in genes that encode for clotting factor eight or clotting factor nine. Deficiency of factor eight or factor nine in the coagulation cascade results in inadequate thrombin generation. And that results in poor clot formation, and there's no mechanism to prevent spontaneous or traumatic bleeding. And that occurs primarily in joints, muscles, and the central nervous system. In addition, with the standard approach to therapy, which is clotting factor that replaces these missing factors, in as many as 30%, these patients develop inhibitors. These are inhibitory antibodies to the infused clotting factor 8 or 9, and this may result in severe morbidity and early mortality, and these usually occur very early in their ages. So this is a devastating disease, and it does occur across the world. And for most of the world, these disorders are poorly managed because of the expense of the clotting factor that's required. And Dr. Rodney, may I extend the discussion here about the hemophilias? Can you talk about some of the more recent additional treatments that are now available for the hemophilias besides you know, the historically used short-acting clotting factors? This has been actually a very exciting chapter in the management of this disorder. Uh, In addition to the standard clotting factors, which are really very burdensome, requiring intravenous infusion and associated with these complications of inhibitors, there are novel non-factor therapies that have been introduced. And perhaps the single one that is approved and which has really revolutionized the disease is a bispecific monoclonal antibody that is known as emicizumab. And what's very exciting about this agent is that it can prevent clotting disorder, so bleeding, uh, in over 90% of patients, and it is given subcutaneously, which makes it a very preferred approach to treatment. There are some drawbacks, though. It does not treat bleeds, so you still need clotting factor for that occasional breakthrough bleed. 
And so the potential promise to prevent inhibitors is not potential if you're using clotting factor. In addition, gene therapy recently was just approved not only for factor nine, but also for factor eight. And these are AAV-based gene therapies. These in a single dose can really give you a phenotypic cure for hemophilia. However, there still remain a number of drawbacks, especially with the factor eight gene therapy. There are issues with durability. So it's been projected that after five years, there may be such low levels that it really questions its worth. There's variability, there's insertional mutagenesis risks, hepatotoxicity, and immunogenicity to the vector that is infused. And in addition, as many as half of the adults have antibodies to AAV, so they're not eligible. It cannot be used in children because of the proliferating, rapid proliferation of their cells. And it, of course, excludes any of the inhibitor patients because with the new gene, they would have another inhibitor developed. So these are exciting improvements, but they certainly are not the final answer to how to manage this disease. Great. Thank you for that. And Dr. Echenes Laguna, can you comment on the major clinical issues and therapeutic goals and conventional treatments that have been used for ATTR? In the field of ATTR, the big historical treatment was liver transplantation. As I told you, the majority of TTR is secreted by the liver, and the first treatment was transplantation, and it started something like 30 years ago. Uh, for 10 years, we had a, an additional treatment that was tafamidis and TTR stabilizer. That's a treatment orally given, and, well, that's what we do usually before the new treatments appeared. And Dr. Keel, um, what have we typically uh, used for acute hepatic porphyrias, conventional therapies? Patients with AHP present with these episodic attacks of severe abdominal pain and acute autonomic and other neurologic dysfunction. AHP patients can suffer seizures or develop posterior reversible encephalopathy. The majority of symptomatic patients are female, and the disease typically presents after puberty. And most, thankfully, most patients have only a few attacks in their lifetime. Unfortunately, about 5% of individuals suffer from recurrent attacks. That said, I'd say we're also now appreciating that the majority of AHP patients have chronic symptoms that happen between their attacks. They can experience chronic pain, mood, and sleep disturbances, and other symptoms that really greatly impact their quality of life. And indeed, in these patients, Hepatic ALA, S1 mRNA, and ALA and PPG levels often remain elevated between attacks, suggesting that a component of our patient's chronic symptoms reflect active disease. Also, the AHP patients face a number of long-term medical complications, including kidney disease, chronic neuropathy, hypertension, and an increased risk of hepatocellular carcinoma. So these patients have a high burden of disease which leads to really a high healthcare utilization. So the treatment of an AHP attack starts with eliminating the known triggers that increase hepatic ALAS1 activity and can precipitate or worsen an attack. We also provide a number of supportive measures to address patients' pain and nausea, and we may administer IV carbohydrates or dextrose. And the therapeutic effect of the carbohydrate loading is thought to be mediated by inhibition of ALAS1 expression. 
The disease-specific treatments for an acute AHP attack is really IV hemin, and hemin treatment restores the heme pool in the hepatocyte and inhibits ALAS1 activity. It's available in a couple of formulations, hemarginate in Europe and lyophilized hemin in the U.S. It's given as an IV injection, typically daily for three or four days, and urinary ALA and PPG measurements typically fall uh, and patients have symptomatic improvement within days. I think there are some downsides to hemin use. Patients can develop a local thrombophlebitis. They can have coagulation abnormalities. And also because it's IV heme, it contains iron. And so patients that have been exposed to recurrent treatments with IV hemin can develop a secondary iron overload. So I just talked about how we treat an acute attack. What about the management and treatment approaches for our patients that have these long-term complications or suffer from recurrent AHP attacks? What do we do prior to the development of gavoserin? And so first and foremost, we just try and avoid triggers. And that might include menstrual suppression with a gonadotropin-releasing hormone analog in individuals that suffer from recurrent attacks during the luteal phase of their menstrual cycle, as a progesterone surge can be porphyrinogenic. And this approach carries a risk of potential bone mineral density lost and postmenopausal symptoms. Additionally, some patients derive benefit from off-label prophylactic infusions of hemin to prevent recurrent attacks. And then lastly, liver transplantation is a curative approach for really a very select subset of patients with severe and recurrent attacks refractory to treatment where the benefit might potentially outweigh the downsides. Well, great. Thank you, Dr. Keelan. Perhaps this is a good segue to really get into the meat of the topic of the review series on RNA therapeutics. Let me ask Dr. Chanez Laguna, if you can talk about the available RNA therapeutics, that is, we have um, an antisensilugan nucleotide in endotericin and now siRNAs in patisseron and butyrisferan. And these are really changing the landscape of the treatment of these diseases, if you can discuss those. Yes, of course, that's been quite a revolution because as I told you before, this is a fatal disorder. And when I was a young physician, I was just watching people die from the disease with no real treatment. So now we have several molecules that are now standard of care. We are giving them to patients and this includes patiziron, vitriziron, inotacin. So when you consider patiziron, the phase three study was published five years ago. It was a phase three with a comparison to a placebo group, and it was clearly demonstrated that patiziron improved neurological scores of patients and improved quality of life. When considering inotercin, they have similar results, but a few more problems, notably a thrombopenia that can happen with this kind of, of treatment. And uh, more recently, we have now Vutriziron. Phase 3 was published uh, a few months back uh, this year. Vutriziron is uh, quite efficient. It's as efficient as Patiziron in terms of neuropathic scores and in terms of quality of life with the advantage for Vutriziron that is being given subcutaneously every three months in comparison with Patiziron, which is given intravenously every three weeks. So we, we're using all three molecules uh, today, uh, at least here in France, as a standard of care for patients. The New England Journal of Medicine did publish the effects of Patiziron in patients with cardiac amyloid disease 
I believe in the Apollo B study. Can you comment on those results? Because impacting and improving cardiac performance has really been a, a longstanding goal for these diseases compared to the benefits that we've seen, thankfully, with the other ASOs and SRNAs. Absolutely. You're completely right. The paper was published last week, and that's uh, the Apollo B study, which is aimed at evaluating cardiac function with uh, patiziron. And what they showed in this study is that you have stabilization and sometimes an improvement of cardiac function uh, using patiziron. But you have to keep in mind that the population was not quite the same because in the Apollo B study, there were patients with uh, hereditary TTR disease, but also patients with wild type TTR, which is uh, not the same disease, and that's a disease that affects mainly the heart and in uh, elder people. So the population is not quite the same, and we need to study each subpopulation of patients to see really what is the effect of patiziron in each subgroup. But the results are quite exciting, and that's really a, a major improvement. Great. And let me move to you, Dr. Ragni. We now have evaluation of patisserin, which may be considered a way to so-called uh, rebalance hemostasis and thrombosis in hemophilia. If you can comment on the rationale for using that sRNA and where we are with the results of potential regulatory approval. It's really long been known that patients with hemophilia who also have antithrombin deficiency have much milder bleeding problems. So using that rationale and recognizing the burden of disease as well as the burden of therapy, there has been great interest in blocking antithrombin, which is the major regulator of thrombin, to prevent bleeding. So deficiency of clotting factors means you have inadequate thrombin generation, and by prolonging thrombin effect, that is inhibiting the inhibitors of thrombin, which specifically is antithrombin, you can improve hemostasis. So that's the rationale here. The fetusaran has been in phase one, phase two, and three studies. We're anticipating potential approval this coming year. What we have learned is in all three of these studies, phase one, two, and three, there's been a remarkable improvement with 90% reduction in bleeding, 90% reduction in factor use, and a simplification of treatment, whereas one needed to treat IV three times a week, here we're using a subcutaneous drug every two months. This is a major improvement, not just in simplifying treatment, but in quality of life. And because you're not using clotting factor, you can inhibit, prevent inhibitors. And I should add, this treatment is effective in hemophilia A with or without inhibitors and in hemophilia B with or without inhibitors. And this is noteworthy because to date, there have been very poor options for treatment for those who have hemophilia B with inhibitors. They live miserable lives. So this is an incredible improvement for these folks. Thank you, Dr. Ragni. And Dr. Kill, can you also comment on uh, the benefits that we've seen with the sRNA gaviseran in AHP. I'll just kind of step back and speak to the rationale first for the development of the gaviseran. So the central role of hepatic ALAS1 induction that leads to an elevated ALA and PPG levels 
in the pathogenesis of the acute attacks really provided a pretty straightforward pathophysiologic rationale to develop an RNAi therapeutic targeting ALAS1 to try and prevent and potentially treat acute attacks in the AHPs. And so the study that provided the efficacy for givoserin in individuals that suffer from recurrent attacks was the Envision study. And this was a double-blind phase three placebo-controlled trial that randomized around 90 patients with AHPs to either givoserin or placebo, and then looked at six months at a number of endpoints. And during the study, patients were taken off of prophylactic panhematin, but they were allowed to have hemin if they had an acute attack. And what the study showed at kind of six months follow-up was quite remarkable. Individuals had a 74% reduction in the mean annualized attack rate, a reduction in hemin usage, and improved quality of life compared to patients that received placebo. So it really looked like a, a game changer. The most common side effects of the drug were nausea and injection site reaction. And some patients on givoserin demonstrated a mild increase in creatinine or a decrease in estimated GFR and some minor LFT elevations. But those creatinine rises were quite mild in the initial six months of the trial. So I think givoserin has really been a game changer for a number of my AHP patients. What I'll point out is that its therapeutic effect in the trial was looked at in individuals that were having recurrent attacks. It hasn't yet been studied in patients for the treatment of an acute attack. And uh, Dr. Kill, maybe I can use this as a segue to talk about safety. Can you comment on what safety issues have developed or if there's any new safety issues that have developed with longer-term use? I'd say in the Envision study, after six months, individuals could move over to the open-label extension portion of the trial, where, again, around 90 patients or so received givoserin for, who had been receiving givoserin for six months or more or had placebo could transition over to givoserin. And the long-term outcome data from the open-label extension portion of the study were recently published. So we have some data now out to 36 months. Some LFTs were seen in the long-term follow-up, LFT abnormalities, and these generally developed after three to six months of therapy and seemed to resolve over time. And the small decrease in estimated GFR that was observed during the initiation of givoserin seemed to stabilize over time. We also have a small retrospective cohort study now published of 25 patients treated with givoserin in France that's also been published, and that kind of provides some real-world clinical experience with the drug. So this study also demonstrated a transient decrease in kidney function in most givoserin-treated patients with no sign of drug-induced renal injury. The decline in renal function was higher um, in patients that had a baseline lower estimated GFR, so we're thoughtful around that. There is data now collected through a global registry that's ongoing to characterize the natural history and management of patients with the AHPs, including those on givoserin. So hopefully that's going to give us some additional real-world safety and efficacy data for the drug. There were a couple of things I'll just comment on that were seen in the study. One got a fair amount of press, and that was that hyperhomocysteinemia has been reported in both AHP patients 
taking gefoserin and patients with no gefoserin exposure. And I think the cause of the elevated homocysteine levels remains unknown. One hypothesis is that this is a hepatocyte-specific heme deficiency that leads to reduced function of a key enzyme, homocysteine metabolizing enzyme, called cystathione beta-synthase, or CBS. CBS requires heme for its full enzymatic activity. As it turns out, CBS is also dependent on vitamin B6 for its activity, And vitamin B6 deficiency is also reported in AHP patients. And a possible explanation for the vitamin B6 deficiency in AHP is that hepatic ALAS1 requires vitamin B6 as a cofactor, and that the chronic hyperactivity of ALAS1 in the AHPs could lead to a vitamin B6 deficiency. So it's been suggested that vitamin B6 and other vitamins involved in homocysteine aimed at lowering homocysteine levels might have a therapeutic benefit. I think where this lands is that the pathophysiology underlying these observations and whether there are any clinical consequences to the elevated homocysteine levels, that's really an open question. I'll just kind of close by saying an open question is whether there is any negative consequences of sustained ALAS1 suppression over time. So for example, does reducing hepatic ALAS1 activity reduce hepatic heme content and potentially impact drug metabolism by heme-containing cytochrome P450 enzymes? There's been one small study of nine patients that tried to look at the drug-drug interactions that suggested that this may not be a concern, though there can be some drug-drug interactions specifically with CYP1A2 and cyp 2D6 substrates and gavoserin. I think as many of our AHP patients are treated with multiple medications to address the signs and symptoms of their disease, a real-world setting of polypharmacy may be a bit more complicated, and so I think we have to remain thoughtful about that possibility. That said, there's been nice work that suggests, I don't think this is clearly known, but suggests that hepatocytes are not actually heme deficient when patients are treated with this drug. Great. Thank you for a nice overview of the safety of Gavesserin. And Dr. Chinez Laguna, if you can comment on what would be the major highlights of any potential safety or toxicity concerns with the ASOs and SARNAs for ATTR. You first need to think about the pathophysiology of TTR. It was shown that you can live without TTR. It has been shown on animal models, on mouse models, providing you supplement the patient with vitamin A. TTR is a transporter for vitamin A. So when you silence the gene, you need to give the patients vitamin A. Otherwise, when considering patiziron and uh, vitriziron, uh, there's no major safety problem. We are in an open-label extension program, but we've been participating in the phase one, phase two, phase three, and we have patients who have been treated for more than 10 years with no major safety issue. So at least right now, it doesn't seem to, to have some major problem. When considering uh, inotercin, on the other hand, as I told you before, there's been some thrombopenia, there's been some glomerulonephritis, 
that has been uh, demonstrated in a few patients. But in the daily routine, we observe sometimes thrombopenia, but uh, it reverses after some time. We just manage the dose of inotercent. Sometimes we diminish it and the things go back in the right direction. So no obvious safety problem right now, but of course, we don't know what will happen in 10 or 20 years of chronic treatment. Great, thank you. And Dr. Ragnick, can you touch on the safety or toxicity concerns of fetuserin? I think it's really interesting to consider that as we perturb the coagulation system and try to rebalance it with the new drugs that have been coming along, including fetuserin, we're learning a lot about how these different coagulation factors in the cascade interact with these drugs. In the case of fetuserin, in the early phase two trials, unexpectedly, arterial and venous thrombosis occurred, and it was fatal in several of these instances. It was quite unexpected, but what we did was a simulation analysis looking at all the data to try to figure out what were risk factors for thrombosis. And while there was concern that any additional factor used at the time fetuserin was used, if there was a breakthrough bleed, that did not seem to be the major risk. The risk was antithrombin levels below 20%. And that was also quite interesting. So what we did was a mitigation procedure in which all patients on the trial and all those now coming into future phase three trials must have a very careful analysis, PK, as they start the drug to assure that their levels are above 20%. That is, that the knockdown goes only to 20% and not below. And actually, what the simulation showed us was that all of the clotting problems occurred when the antithrombin was less than 20%. And since the mitigation procedure in which we are above 20%, no clots have occurred. So this is very reassuring. But again, it's a steep learning curve. And I might add one additional unexplained problem we saw in a few patients was cholelithiasis and mild LFT abnormalities, which we could not explain in any other way. But it turns out that a fetuserin is excreted in the bile. And so what we found again is that if you can keep that antithrombin level above 20%, you can eliminate cholelithiasis and some of these LFT abnormalities. We're learning more, so we're collecting more data, but that's the early news. And I believe this is really part of the reason that it slowed down getting to the FDA and getting to approval. But you know what? It's a steep learning curve again, and I think that's a really exciting way uh, that we have of learning about the coagulation system by perturbing it and seeing what happens. So I think that it's a good outcome now. Thank you, Dr. Agni. Well, my last question for all of you is really uh, looking forward. I want to see what all of you think about the key future challenges and innovations in RNA therapeutics for your respective diseases. Perhaps, Dr. Ragni, we can start with you here, and then I'll, I'll move around. You know, in addition to small interfering RNAs, there are a number of studies that are all preclinical. So these are mostly mouse, he may and he be mouse models. 
but they're very exciting. Of course, one really takes a page from the playbook of the mRNA vaccines for COVID, and they are mRNA gene therapies. These, interestingly, have required lipid encapsulation to prevent a breakdown of the mRNA. And they have looked quite exciting in mouse models of hemophilia A and B, raising the levels into the hundreds of percent and a very exciting option. Of course, this treatment is really done every few months and it is intravenous. So it's not perhaps as exciting as one would hope. But I think one of the most exciting areas of development is gene editing. And of course, this is where you would take the patient's own DNA and really literally cut out the mutation that's responsible for hemophilia for that particular patient, repair it, and then re-infuse it in the use of some of the stem cell therapeutic approaches. And this is very exciting because it would offer the possibility of personalized therapies and if successful, could be, again, a one-and-done type of approach. One of the very exciting things, though, is that they're doing much more in the way of specific gene editing, where they use prime editors uh, instead of standard gene editing, which offer a more specific targeting of the site to be used and perhaps greater safety. But I think more will come of these. Again, these are not ready for prime time. They're all animal studies in animal hemophilia A and B models, but it's very exciting to think forward. And I think it will be a way of, for example, an opportunity of something in addition to gene therapy, which really has many drawbacks, and even with siRNAs, which look very exciting now, but are not perfect. So I think it's a very exciting time. Dr. Echenez Laguna, if you can comment on uh, issues of key future challenges and innovations in ATTR. Yes, we have major challenges in the future for uh, ATTR. The first one being that some TTR is produced in the brain and the eye. I told you before, 90% of TTR is produced by the liver, but 10% is produced in brain and the eye, and this provokes stroke, migraine, dementia. Uh, so very, very heavy neurological problems. So we and the treatments we have right now, Betiziron, Vitriziron, and they do not cross the blood-brain barrier. So what's happening in the central nervous system is not actually uh, open to treatment. So we need to develop something, perhaps some intratical formulations of treatment to access the central nervous system. The second point is the pre-symptomatic patients. We have now patients with the mutation. We know that they are going to develop at some point the disease. Sometimes they already have some amyloid deposits. And the question is, when should we start treatment in these patients? So there's no very clear answer right now. And while evaluating the, these things to try to determine when is the best moment to start uh, treating. The third point and the last one 
is a gen editing. We're starting working with CRISPR-Cas9 on TTR gene. There's already been some patients treated. Some have been published a few years back. And we, as a matter of fact, we treated a few patients here in Paris. And that's very exciting because that opens the, the something like a, a one-shot treatment for a genetic disorder. We are targeting the TTR gene in the liver. And we hope it was just one injection to completely delete the TTR gene. So that's very preliminary. There's only a few patients treated until now, but that's really very exciting for the future. Thank you. And Dr. Keel, what do you see in the future for challenges and innovation in acute hepatic porphyrias? I think we have a number of immediate questions. Uh, one is whether there's a role for givocerin in the treatment of acute attacks in the AHPs. There was mirroring data around this, but no human studies. Also, some patients have prolonged and stably low urinary ALA levels without monthly gavoserin treatment. So we remain pretty thoughtful about what's the optimal dosing for the individual, those that might have this sustained reduction in their ALA. I think there's also a pretty practical immediate question, which is, could this drug be administered at home? That would be a lot more convenient for patients. I'd also point out that givocerin has not been a complete panacea for all AHP patients. Some patients continue to have biochemically and clinically active disease, and there are even patients presenting without urinary evidence of biochemically active disease, but with symptoms that are exactly analogous or similar to their previous typical attacks. So we need to sort out how to help those patients and whether that might be a combination therapy with givocerin and hemin or a new therapeutic. I think more broadly, there are other porphyrias apart from the AHPs. Each are caused by a deficiency in an enzyme, which potentially may benefit from RNA therapeutics or other approaches like substrate reduction therapy or other methodologies. Well, with that, I want to thank Drs. Keel and uh, Drs. Eshanel Laguna and Dr. Ragni to really give us a, a really fascinating glimpse into the uh, use of these ASOs and sRNAs, which are really incredibly fascinating examples of the era of genomic medicine addressing unmet needs and historically, traditionally, very difficult to treat diseases. And uh, with that, I'd like to remind our readers of blood that this series will be available on November 9th in publication. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for listening to this bonus episode of the Blood Podcast. To read these articles, visit bloodjournal.org. This episode is copyrighted by the American Society of Hematology.